Welcome to People Data Insights. This is Paul Ryman. Once again, I have with me Brian Briscoe. Brian, say hello. Hey there, Paul. Well, today we're going to talk about a topic that it feels like everybody's talking about, but everybody's sort of talking around and, and lots of different perspectives floating around. But, you know, and I think what we'll talk about is how we don't feel like there's a lot of best perspectives floating around. And that's around the, 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 the matter of remote work, people working remotely. It's sort of a thing these days. Um, so the way that we'll approach this today is Brian and I will each share a little bit about our history with remote working. Then we'll break into some discussion about a couple of research studies, and I'll explain why when we get closer to that. And then have a, a heated debate or, or maybe a heated agreement. We'll see about how, how should we be approaching this and how do we make things work. So that's our roadmap for today. So Brian, why don't you kick off and, and share with everyone a little bit of your history of remote work? Yeah, thanks, Paul. Uh, my history of remote work is, uh, it, when I start to think about it, it makes me think that uh, people don't like being around me very much, is, uh, if I get a little bit self-conscious about it. Uh, We've been meaning to have that conversation. Yeah, but... yeah you included too, Paul. Like you, We were rarely in the same city. Um, most people seem to like that relationship with me. Uh, being a couple hundred miles away. So I have been working in a either a hybrid or fully remote environment since about 2006, with the exception of maybe one year. Um, so I've done a lot of, uh, I, I guess I'm kind of like the hipster of remote workers before the pandemic. I was doing it before it was cool. Uh, I've probably got, uh, the, you know, trying to, to count things across different companies and jobs, probably about a dozen years of fully remote, hundreds of miles away from my boss, um, you know, a couple of years of doing uh, remote hybrid stuff. And, and I've even done a few years of work actually in an office, like Monday through Friday, which is, uh, uh, I'm not sure if that's normal at all anymore. But uh, yeah, I've done a little bit of everything, but mostly remote work over my whole career. So I, I think the kids would call you an OG yeah. uh, when it comes to remote work. Like you, you were doing this before it was cool. cool. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's that's it. Uh, so so much so that I can't even keep up with the terminology of what it means to do things before you're cool. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, <laughs> uh, in a in a hermit like state for most of my adult life. There you go. I guess. You could argue some people, right? We've been told that we have uh, faces for radio. Maybe you have a presence for remote work, right? Like, <laughs> it just makes sense for you to be out there somewhere else. I like to think it's I have a strong personality. That... As opposed to a strong scent, yeah. right? That would be the other possibility. Maybe a little bit of both, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but, like... Cor- Depends on the day. Correlation, causation, you know, who, who, like, let's not, let's not worry about details, Perhaps I have the opposite story to an extent where um, I actually at one point made a career change in part because I didn't like working remote. Um, although I was reminded not long ago, they're like, Paul, you really did work remote for a good chunk of your early consulting career. It just wasn't, it was traveling. <laughs> right? I, was, I was never in an office. I was just in a hotel room um, or in a lobby or in an airport lobby working. But so I had that experience of working not in a traditional work setting, you know, but that was kind of the nature of the job. Mm-hmm. But then I did work in a, a very office-based culture, um, particularly in my my time at Morningstar, um, which is my first corporate gig after leaving consulting the first time around. 
where it was a very tight office culture, very defined work setting, uh, a beautifully developed and designed work setting, in fact, to make the most of an office environment. So I, I got very comfortable and used to being physically with people and working in a space. Um, I then worked for a company where we closed the office that I was based in. So I was working from home and it drove me nuts. Like I didn't like the isolation. My wife couldn't wait to get me out of the house uh, just to get me <laughs> back with people. Um, so I, switched, I happened to switch jobs then right before COVID hit um, and became a remote worker once again. And, and now I'm a fully remote worker, uh, of course, running my own business. So um, I have a, kind of a seesaw effect here of remote, not remote, remote, not remote, remote again um, over the course of, of several years as well. So not as defined of a remote working experience as you, certainly, Brian. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, that, I think a, a little bit of variety is healthy there. And, uh, and clearly there's some, there's some periods of time there where people questioned whether they wanted you to be around too. So <laughs> <laughs> even if it was just Kim. But uh, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, for you at least, it's like other it's other coworkers. For me, it's my spouse, which is probably even more condemning in the grand scheme of things. Right. So, needless to say, we both have experienced remote work. We've both experienced non-remote work. Um, you know, the debate nowadays is about the you know how good is it? How how not good is it? Um, you know, it seems like. For, the, for a while, the discussion was, well, when will people be going back? Then it became, if folks will be coming back, then to an extent it's, well, how much will people be coming back into the office? Um, maybe not so much why are people coming back, which I'm sure is a theme we'll get to at a point. But um, what I wanted to do next is to tee up, you know, I feel like this is one of those topics where you know, you, you, you meet someone, you talk about remote work, well, well, there's this study that says that remote work is bad. Well, there's this study that says that remote work, you know, really is, is good. Um, so I wanted to arm our audience with some facts, right? What are some actual studies that, that get cited? Um, talk about what they say, and maybe, you know, we can debate a little bit how we see those studies applying to our own experience or, you know, to what extent do we think they're just completely obvious? <laughs> um, you know, but let's start with that and then we'll see what we can learn from them and lay out some principles, you know, that we kind of discern from those, uh, from those research experiences. All right. Educate us, Paul. Education time. Here we go. Uh, so the first study is actually really two uh, that kind of layered on top of each other. Um, but one is particularly interesting in its design. So there's a professor by the name of Nicholas Bloom out of Stanford, um, had a student in his class, actually, who then went on to become the CEO of Trip.com, or maybe was already the CEO of Trip.com, which is a China-based organization. Um, and the, the study that is the one that I think is the most cited and discussed is where they actually had a controlled experiment to sample a hybrid working environment. So they picked people, I believe, I don't have it in my notes, but I'm pretty sure it was based on the, the start of their name. Um, so it was a split sample where half of the organization worked from home two days per week, and the other portion of the organization didn't work remotely. So they had a, a full in-office experience. So they're contrasting in a, in a randomized control sample around what happens when people have an element of remoteness in their role. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, you know, this isn't like asking for volunteers, right? When I say random controlled 
sample, right? They are randomly picking people so that you can control and say, well, what happens when you change this condition, meaning they allow work from home, or where do you not change this condition where everybody's working in the office? And since you pick people at random, you assume that there's an, a similarity between the two sides. So that's what I mean by that random control. Um, so they ran this study about these two different groups, and here's a rundown of what they find. So attrition uh, reduced 35%. Work satisfaction increased, although it's not cited specifically. Um, you know, it's, it's on a survey, I guess. So you don't really know. It's, but people said that they felt better about their work. They found that the structure of hours spent changed. So fewer hours were actually worked on days that people work from home. But it was made up uh, by more work on other days when they were in the office. They found that communication patterns changed a lot. So chats and video calls increased both when in and out of the office. So the people who spent some time in hybrid working kind of used more chat and video call technology. Um, and they did not see any impact on performance ratings or promotions, but did see an increase in the number of code lines written by uh, engineers by 8%. Um, so a bunch of different quantitative outcomes there based on the research. They had done some previous work with the same firm, just with call center employees that kind of found similar things. Productivity was up, satisfaction up, attrition down. Um, but in that original study, there was some unclear evidence about kind of promotion rates. But this, this latest one with the, the random control trial um, showed that there was no impact on ratings or promotions. So I don't know, Brian. Are you familiar with that study before now, or am I uh, am I briefing you on this? So I've heard uh, I've heard uh, pieces of that. Certainly, so I remember the the controlled experiment where I think they did split by name. Uh, so that is uh, that is familiar to me. You know, some of those results. Um, yeah, I think this is one of those studies where people just go like, "Hey, let's uh, let's just burn down all the uh, the office space and send everybody." Uh, home and, and do that, which is which is of course probably an extreme response to that. But uh, but yeah, the, the study comes out pretty pretty overwhelmingly in in favor of uh, of hybrid work for sure. So it, it, none of those findings are negative, sort of either to the to the firm or to the worker. So it is kind of very positive in that regard. <clears throat> you know, one thing, and I don't I don't know Professor Nicholas Bloom. Um, so I haven't had the chance to ask the question, but I do wonder because there's an awareness you're in a study. <laughs> like, how does that affect how you engage in the study? Um, you know, and and particularly if you're part of this group that's being allowed to work hybrid, do you know that that's a, like, sort of like a special benefit? And you know, this occurred in China where remote working is just less was and is less prevalent outside of a pandemic. Um, so I wonder, is it, is it broadly applicable? Like, do we think that that circumstance, how it was introduced, how it was managed, does it scale well, um, you know, into a, an American workforce or into just, you know, a non-Chinese workforce at that point? Right. Um, I just don't know, right? I mean, any, any thoughts or reactions about the general applicability of a study like that? So I think that's one great question. Um, I think another one is is like over time, and I can't remember if you said how long that what the the time period that they looked at this was, but I think there's a sustainability question of you know when you introduce something new, maybe there's a positive effect just because 
it's new and it sort of like reinvigorates people, even if they don't know they're a part of a study. Just um, you know, it's kind of like if you if you get a new job or if you get a new puppy or if you get a new anything, it's it's more exciting, bright and shiny. You're happy to have it for those first couple weeks, months, days. You know, if it's a kid's Christmas present, the first you know thirty-seven seconds after they open it. Um, but what does that mean? You know, three years from now, four years from now, that type of thing. Um, I think that's probably one of the other critiques is how sustainable uh, is the performance. I think with hybrid work, that's you know, um, I think it's less of an issue than fully remote work. You know, fully remote work versus hybrid work, I think, are two different things. And even what the definition of, of fully remote work is, but uh, yeah, I think there, there's definitely some uh, there's definitely some room to uh, to critique the study and, and or you know look at some other control variables there. Yeah, I just I just pulled up the the uh, working paper, which I'll include in the show notes for those who want to read it. One, I have to correct myself; it wasn't done by name. It, uh, the randomization was done by date of birthday, so odd and even birth dates, same effect. Yeah. Um, and then to answer your question about the timeline, it's over six months. So you know these findings sound great, but do they do they hold over a longer period of time? So if you know you're part of a study and you get to work from home two days a week for six months, that might be seen as a perk and a benefit. Um, it's not so much the, um, not so much the hybrid model that is reducing attrition. It's the fact that you've gotten a benefit that's reducing attrition. Right. <laughs> um, right. And the hybridness may or may not be sustainable over, over a period of time. Yeah. Got it. Um, the one, the one finding that I don't want to say it doesn't, past muster but it it i was more surprised i'm not surprised that attrition reduces i'm not surprised that people feel better about their work because just in general if, if you have the sense of control you tend to you know just like having a choice makes you more satisfied having more control makes you more satisfied you know changing the structure of the hours didn't surprise me we're all doing more video calls and chat so that didn't surprise me the the productivity is one that surprised me a little bit so lines of code increasing um partly because Lines of code is one of those measures that my engineering friend says, you got to be careful about that one anyway. <laughs> um, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes the best code is not the longest code. Um, so that was the one that I, I looked at and said, do we really have evidence here of productivity? Because code, you know, verbose code is not necessarily quality code. Right. And it's not really saying much about work productivity or quality. So that's the other kind of wrinkle my eyebrow a little bit part of that study is what does it really say about productivity? And I think that's the pushback I hear from business leaders who are concerned about hybridness or remoteness is managing the the productivity of those that are working remotely. Yeah, that is an interesting thing from the coding side. You know, um, you know, I think an interesting metric would be things like, you know, projects delivered on time or, or you know, under budget or, you know, what was I... Right. You know, what was actually accomplished versus just uh, writing more code that just when you said that it, it flashed me back to when I was taking the GRE in undergrad. And it was like, write as many words as you can on the essay section and you'll get a perfect score. Just <laughs> true. I did because uh, anybody that has ever read, uh, you know, read anything that I've written. Um, yeah. You know, if you throw enough words, basically the strategy was throw enough words at people and the grad school students who were grading the GRE exams won't have enough time to see if you had like mistakes in it. Um, I think, you know, 
there is a danger with that with work and, and you know, measures of productivity and, and quality, certainly over quantity. So let's, we'll give it sort of a question mark about uh, the impact of productivity, like not a clear outcome uh, from that study for sure. So the, the second study I want to cite um, and talk a little bit about was done by Microsoft. Um, so it was written up in, uh, in Nature. There's a more, you know, uh, common person write up from my perspective in, in Inc. Um, and I'll include those in the show notes. But I, found th- I find this study particularly interesting because if there's anybody who knows how to analyze certain types of data, it's Microsoft because we're all using their products and they know how to look at usage of those products. So we're not looking here at what people said or felt. Um, it's just literally looking at communications data in you know, pre and early pandemic and seeing, well, how did things change? How are people using the tools that existed? And what can we derive from those patterns about how they are working and how the structure of work is changing? Um, so what they found, and this is, again, comparing communications data for their workforce, kind of pre and early pandemic, was that working hours actually went up early in the pandemic as people move remote. Um, they're able to see who's working with whom, right? Between chats and teams, between emails, calendar invites, things like that. And they found that uh, networks became more static and siloed. So the number of, you know, notably the number of new connections and the time you spend with new connections decreased as remoteness happened. Um, there was a broad shift from synchronous to asynchronous communications. So instead of real-time chats or conversations or meetings, you know, more in the form of email and such. Um, you know, and then then the paper goes on to, to kind of talk about the effects that those variables could have over time. But those are sort of the key factual outcomes related to sort of comparing communication pre and after, you know, the pandemic began and, and remoteness happened. So I guess any any flash reactions to those findings, Brian? You know, I guess one of the things, because, you know, I get my uh, I get my Microsoft updates of like, you know, who I've been collaborating with and how many hundred people I've communicated with back and forth in the last couple of months and who my most frequent collaborators are and that type of thing. Um, which, you know, is a lot of the same data that's, that's uh, you know, obviously they're, they're good at aggregating that and sometimes throwing it back in our face just to remind us uh, that they're always watching, I think, is why they do it. I don't know, maybe it's to be annoying. But um, one of the things that kind of throws me off about some of that data is it does capture what's happening in that work environment. I think about, though, how much informal communication happens when, like, people pick up the phone and just call each other on their cell phone or text messaging. Um, you know, I, I know that, like, the picture of my network, if you did an ONA, uh, was that the organizational network analysis? Yeah, yep. who, who it says that I most frequently talk to and, and interact with would be, like, kind of right up until you get to, like, sort of uh, different circles of people, if that makes sense. Like like Teams knows the people that I talk to in Teams the most, but it doesn't know the people that I text message the most on my personal cell phone, or it doesn't know the people that I pick up a phone and, and call them not on the company line. Not, not because, uh, you know, some of those are the people I've worked with the longest because I had their phone number before I ever had Teams. And, you know, we have a text channel that goes back, you know, years before we we had any of those things and that's just how we communicate. So I, I think, 
you know, one of the tricky parts of that is trying to draw these conclusions from just sort of knowing things. Um, it's, yeah. it's not unlike, you know, the retirement studies where Fidelity will come out and say, or any other, you know, investment firm will come out and say, this is what the average person has in their 401k account. Well, it's like, that's what they have in the 401k account that you have for them. But they might have five different 401k accounts. For sure. I think, um, you know, what's, what I find interesting about the study is actually what comes after the, the core findings, right? Where they then talk about what effect these variables could have, right? Sort of give another research on the topic. And even <clears throat> the, uh, the Inc. article, like the headline is, New Microsoft Study of 60,000 Employees, Remote Work Threatens Long-Term Innovation. Um, so there's, there's a logical leap that's made around if your network's not growing, if it's more static and siloed, if you're not spending more time with new people, that together those effects then make it harder for you to acquire and share new information, which is what fuels innovation, right? So there's a couple of ifs <laughs> or whens in that statement <clears throat> that link to the, the headline or what got picked up from this by the popular press, right? Like, oh my gosh, if you're not talking to people, then there's no way that creativity can be sustained. But that's not what the, the study doesn't say that. It's more when we see these things, we've traditionally felt that that's the impact that it could have. And I know I, I personally challenge, well, but is that even applicable anymore? Yeah. If, you know, we all kind of learned how to do things remotely. We didn't think we could do remotely before. Um, you know, in, is innovation occurring in, in remote environments? For sure. <laughs> and I think people are learning. And I just don't know how broadly applicable those past findings around network effects you know, and, and innovation, how much do those really ring true after, you know, what, what the economy and, and all people have been through over the past couple of years? Well, I mean, I think the examples are pretty clear. Like Ernest Hemingway could have never written books if he hadn't been working in a cubicle or had an office the whole time. Um, Picasso, if he had not gone into his class A uh, real estate to, uh, you know, work on paintings and things, he never would have been able to be creative. I think that's, you know, the, the conclusion that they're jumping to is that that you have to be there and, and work with other people, which is, you know, uh, uh, there's some sarcasm there, but I think that I, like, I think there's a lot of different kinds of creativity. Um, and, so, and, you know, different people need different things. So I think that's, um, it's tricky to me. Like, if you're trying to put people on the moon and it's going to take thousands of people to work together to do it. Obviously you need to be, um, you know, you need to have some kind of connection points and things. I think some people like the creativity, like maybe somebody that's coding software, you need them to solve a problem. Like they may be better off uh, on their own. So yeah, I do kind of question those, uh, the assumptions that, uh, that, you know, being together creates more creativity. I mean, uh, there's, there's some yeah. other studies that show that, but I don't know that it's like a conclusive uh, binary world. That would be my chance. Yeah, for sure. And <clears throat> I've certainly seen studies and I definitely hear examples all the time, you know, on, on both sides of this, like, oh, we've totally figured this out. Look, we've launched this new product in record time, you know, to great acclaim, fully remote. Um, and then someone else say, oh, yeah, that, that implementation was a total disaster. And I'm, I blame it on the fact that we weren't together. <laughs> right. Yep. Um, you, you definitely still hear those stories. <clears throat> you know, it's it's tough to 
now we don't have the controlled type experiment that that trip.com have right i mean i I took a company live on Workday in the midst of a pandemic, and I, I continually say, hey, I wonder how much better or worse that went <laughs> um, than otherwise. But I'll never know, because I don't have another parallel universe of people together rather than separate, you know, implementing the same system the same way in the same company to be able to see what the differences are. It's just conjecture at that point. Um, you know, so we're always going to be guessing to an extent, because we just don't have the data to, to completely compare the two worlds at this point. Yeah. And let's not forget, if we had a parallel universe, that probably wouldn't be the question we'd try to answer. <laughs> you think we'd be doing better things if there was like a completely... <laughs> let's find out if Paul's workday implementation is better. We could, we could solve so many things, but let's, let's see if that would have gone better not being remote. Yeah. So shifting away from some of the studies then, recognizing that there's always going to be a, a degree of guessing and some questions about applicability about the research. Um, I guess, what else do we see? What else do we find? And I led into this a little bit up front that, you know, I think we both agree a lot of the debate has been more about when, if people are coming back to the office and less about how do we make it work? Um you know, my, my personal belief, uh, there's a former colleague of mine overseas who always says, you know, the war for talent is over and talent won. And there's a clear preference from the workforce around hybrid work when possible. Um, so if we give that as a, I don't want to say an assumption broadly, but I take it as a bit of an assumption that talent prefers an element of flexibility and remoteness. Um, the question then becomes how? <laughs> how do you bring people together? Why do you bring people back together? Um, you know, and recognizing that any amount of hybridness or remoteness affects everybody, not just the worker who is hybrid and remote. You know, what are the things that need to change around that? Um, so I know you've given this a lot of thought. I'd love to get some of your initial first reactions about, you know, what should the debate really be about, uh, and what kind of what kind of things are you thinking about as a business leader, or that you, or that you hear others sort of debating or thinking about when it comes to making it successful rather than so much a binary, yes, it, it's good or no, it's bad. Yeah. So I think it's, for me, I think there's a, a couple things I'd love to get your thoughts on it, Paul. But, you know, the first question to me is like, if I think about the job and the individual, you know, in a competitive marketplace, is this job normally remote? You know, like, like there are jobs like graphic designers that you, you know, have been hiring remote for years or, or doing things with, uh, you know, there's other jobs that have uh, sort of evolved over time that I think about, um, you know, jobs that you could easily either contract out or, um, you know, and, and then I think within the organization, it's, it really matters too. You know, I've, I've had a lot of my remote time over my career. I wasn't just remote. Um, you know, so if I, if I was working in theory out of the, you know, Washington DC area, but living in Atlanta, I was also working with people that were in Dubai and people that were in Singapore and people that were in Hong Kong and people that were in Florida and California and all around the world. Right. So, uh, you know, I think jobs, you know, really assessing like, what is the real need for the job to be in person? What is the, you know, what is the actual personal day to day interaction? You know, how much does that help? Um, you know, that's one piece. I think, you know, how does, how does the work normally happen is another, you know, how is it, you know, you made a great point about how does it disrupt the organization? 
Um, it was way harder before the pandemic. Uh, you know, I, I had a team that I worked on for years that I was basically the only remote person. Um, and so it was like, it was like I was the one person, uh, on a conference call. We didn't even do zoom meetings or teams or anything like that. I, I was just, you know, basically the, the kind of running joke was I just existed in the, in the polycom box on the conference room table. Um, and I had to just, you know, try to listen and make the best that I could, uh, versus if you're in a world where, um, you know, 50 or 75% of the team is remote and everybody, everybody's on, you know, a video conference, uh, all day long and that type of thing. I think all of those factors, uh, play into sort of a, a weighted average. Um, but you know, they're all kind of on a sliding spectrum. I think being a leader is harder to do remote and I've done a number of leadership roles for a number of companies remotely and, and it takes conscientious effort. So I think, you know, besides the situation, I think the other big sort of, you know, X factor variable out there is, uh, you know, is the person equipped to do that? And I think that's one of the questions we've been missing as a society in this and that a lot of business leaders skip as, you know, not is remote work good or bad, but are we, equipping managers to lead either remote people or to lead from remote positions and and how do you handle those things because i think it's there's a skill set mm-hmm. to that so that was a lot but yeah it's a lot for sure i think i'm gonna i would love to react to where you ended there in particular because uh, there's a, a personal story uh, you know i think what i so too many times people brand folks as, well, they're, they are a good leader or they're not a good leader. Um, not really giving credit to the fact that remote leadership is just totally different. <laughs> um, you know, I'd like to think I was a reasonable leader uh, in, my, in my roles. Um, but I don't think I was a very good remote leader early pandemic. I, I didn't realize how much of my leadership style and value was built around approachability, right? walking the halls, seeing people, having conversations, and, and making it okay for anybody in my team to approach me, right? That was harder to build remote. Um, new people who started in the pandemic, I don't want to say they're afraid of me, because if anybody's ever met me face-to-face, you, you can't be afraid of someone like me. Um, you know, it, it's not, it wasn't fear, it was organizational you know, concern, right? Oh, can I really just send them a, a message, right? Um, so, so much of my ability to lead was built around kind of knowing what was going on at the, at the shop floor level, right? And having those conversations and being in touch with the work as a result. And that was really hard to do in a remote setting where there wasn't, you know, casual bump in moments where people didn't know me well enough to say, oh, no, you actually can just, you know, give him a call or send him a message <laughs> and he will read that. Um, and I didn't realize it, right? Because I also was sort of assuming that all of the things I had been doing were fine, mm-hmm. right? So as a leader, I had to kind of retool myself pretty aggressively about you know six months into the pandemic, realizing, okay, the, the old toolkit doesn't work anymore. Um, and it's time to embrace some different ways of you know, creating those same things. I don't know how to lead without that level of openness. Um, and I, I'm just not smart enough to learn a completely different way of doing it. So how do you create those channels? How do you stay in touch with people differently? Um, you know, so the, the work had to change, the work of leading had to change. Um, 
you know, creating new communication channels, <laughs> you know, creating different ways of connecting with folks that I had never needed to create. It just sort of happened organically, you know, in more physical ways. So, I mean, even for myself, I, I couldn't agree with that more that like there's a different set of tools that that managers and leaders need when you're talking about not being physically present, it's just not how we've thought about managing or leading in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other the other thing I wanted to react to in your comments, um, <clears throat> you know, and the thing that it's the thing I miss still about kind of not being together with people as often is the connectedness, right? The feeling like you're a part of something. You know, I do feel like there's more free agency <laughs> that comes with being remote. Um, there's not it's not the the as deep of a connection with people, and certainly not with a place, but um, you know, I just, do you feel as a part of something if you're a part of it through the, the box on the table? Um, you know, perhaps you felt that way because you, you've stuck with it and you, you know, you've, you've been in your organization over time for a period of time. But, um, you know, I, I don't know if I could feel a part of something as completely, I guess, if I'm not immersed in it. And that's just, you know, showing my age perhaps to an extent where it's just that's the way I've grown up is the setting helps define that identity. And, and creating that connectedness and identity in a, in a virtual way is pretty important. I was talking to an organization just before, well, a couple of weeks ago, um, fully, fully virtual now um, at their stage of growth. But they, they committed to getting everyone in the company together um, in a couple of different cities around the country. So it was one of those, you know, travel to the closest of these cities um, with intentional time, not around like business meeting, just around connectedness. So that they could, you know, get to know folks across boundaries, right? To kind of speak to the Microsoft study, but just feel a part of something bigger than the work team that they're on that Zoom with, you know, a couple of times a week. Um, so it's those kinds of practices that I think have to emerge quickly um, to fill in some of the gaps that do kind of cr get created when when everyone's virtual or or more remoteness uh, is yeah. used. I think those techniques and like defining remote, because I think sometimes we think remote is you live somewhere else and so you just never see anyone. And I think that model, um, you know, there, there's, there's plenty of other, you know, uh, podcasts and some, you know, I think Adam Grant did some research, uh, a while back talking about like the, and, and maybe, or maybe it was him on a podcast quoting somebody else, but, uh, but it was basically talking about like, you still need that personal interaction face to face to start to build trust, to build relationships. Um, so like if, if I've worked, uh, you know, over the last, uh, many years, you know, really like some of, some of the team members that I work with now, I've worked with since 2006, uh, off and on and in different roles in different places. Um, you know, until you really have that like face to face meeting with people, I think it is hard to build trust. So, uh, you know, knowing that you got to bring people into town or, or get people together and do that, but then being very intentional about that time. So one of my observations about remote versus hybrid versus in the office, and, and this has been used in my organization, I think, uh, as kind of an example of things is, is uh, when I, I go into my office about four days out of the month, and uh, I often introduce people to other people who have both worked in the same office for 
five, 10, 20 years at, at, at sometimes. Um, because when I go into the office for, for four days at a time, I am, uh, you know, the, the Microsoft collaboration measurement thing that we talked about before is basically like, I'm not even sure Brian's working. Like he doesn't check his email. He's, uh, hardly on any calls. He's doing that because I very intentionally work my way through the business. Um, you know, go meet people, do things face to face. And, and I think what happens in the, you know, the people that are never remote, uh, you know, kind of take it for granted. And so for years I made a habit of setting up, you know, coffee meetings, doing those types of things. And it would be sometime, you know, earlier in my career when I was an individual contributor, I might get my, you know, Monday through Thursday in the office once every three months. Um, I valued that time. You know, I, uh, <clears throat> contrary to, to earlier comments, I really do, uh, actually like hanging out with people and a few people will tolerate me. Um, and so, so when I do get to see people, it's a, it's like an amazing sort of enriching time. It's time to build trust. It's time to catch up and talk about families and, and do that stuff. And then, then you can carry that forward. I think, um, a lot of people, you know, the way the pandemic was forced on people in remote work, that kind of remote work situation where you say, I can't be near anybody for 12 months because we're afraid that we're going to infect the company and kill everybody and, and everybody's going to die. Uh, when you're when you're working under those conditions, that is not good for onboarding people, new hires, that type of thing. Uh, I think that's you know from a leadership standpoint, like you said, um, being a leader remotely is hard. You know, I do that right now, um, and I've got remote people on my team. I've got people that are working in a hybrid environment. Um, it you know they're all remote compared to me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would say there was probably one solid year where I managed people in an office and I was like, kind of like, this is amazingly easy. If you can see the people that you're working with every day and they're right there. Um, you know, I think that's, those are the kind of things that we have to balance and, and, and think about as we, as we prepare people, um, you know, what are those skill sets? What are those expectations? What are those travel budgets? You know, you know, what have we done to, uh, to make sure that people are ready to build those relationships and then maintain them. I, I think that the, you know, my big takeaway and path forward on this, you know, not just for me, but as I meet with others is, I, I don't know if there is a turning back, right? I think it is time to embrace that there are new work patterns, right? There are new workplaces. Um, there are more work schedules, meaning people balancing flexibly different you know, pressures or needs. And as a result, they're working at different times uh, in addition to space. Um, so as a result, the work is, and how people collaborate will change. So whether it's 10 people in your company or it's everyone in your company, it's going to be different than if everybody was together the way it in theory used to be. Um, even though I'm not sure it ever really was perfectly that, you know, you being an example in your past. So, you know, it's more about understanding what is changing in those scenarios? And I think we've highlighted most of those things. The level of connectedness. How do you intentionally use face-to-face -face time versus non-face-to-face -face time? You know, how do you respect and build norms around virtual communication and, and how to use those tools most effectively? Right? That's where more work needs to be done. It's less about is it one day, two days, three days, four days, five days for some people or for everybody and more about recognizing that the structure of work is changing 
what what needs to be done differently and and the more that the emphasis can be on how to make it successful and less about fighting <laughs> about can it be successful um will be better off in the long run for everybody yeah that's great points paul i think that's uh you know focusing on the success is something that i think a, a lot of the debate over even when we pull out statistics and things, instead of saying like, "How do we make it better?" we 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 continuously kind of go back as as organizations to should we or shouldn't we, as opposed to how do we optimize this scenario, whether we whether we you know sort of fundamentally love it or, or hate it or, or whatever it is. Any other uh, key considerations? Closing thoughts? Funny jokes about remote work uh, from your right. side, Brian? I think there should be more jokes about remote work, but they probably would all get misconstrued and get us all into trouble. But uh, no, uh, I think it's, I think it's great. It's been a good conversation. You know, I encourage people to, you know, whether you're in the throes with it, you know, even if it's like the most difficult thing that you're dealing with now, um, I would say, you know, you're dealing with humans. So that, that's probably the thing to always remember. And, and humans are all unique and all have different needs and different, you know, different stages of life. Um, so remembering that, the uh, dealing with the remote worker, who's like the new parent who has a small kid at home or who is like trying to do preschool drop off, um, might be different than the person that's like the, the empty nester that, you know, lives alone or the, you know, whatever situation people are in. Uh, I always think too, like there's, there's probably a mental health and a, and a connectiveness and a social element there, uh, that remembering those human factors is important for people mm. too. Yeah, for sure. And, and one might argue that the, the remoteness that was thrust upon all of us in a pandemic made everybody a little bit more human. Um, you know, my, my team got to know my, well, now three and eight year old much better since they would just randomly show up in yeah. some meetings <laughs> when when daddy forgot to lock the door kind of a thing. Um, but it, that ended up being a good thing, right? There is a different amount of human connection um, amongst the team when you just know a little bit more about folks. And um, that's one of the, the upsides uh, of, you know, a shared traumatic experience. But also the remoteness has kind of opened our doors um, to an extent. Uh, to everybody, just to to be human amongst each other. So I, I I agree, both having the the, you know, giving each other grace as humans, but also recognizing that's been a good thing, uh, in many ways to just humanize leaders and and humanize workers a little bit differently. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for the thanks for the conversation, yeah. Brian. It's always a pleasure to talk remote work with an OG like yeah, yourself. Likewise. And, you know, given that most of our relationship has been a, uh, a remote relationship, uh, who knew that, that that would be that way. So I, I think uh, you've got some pretty, some pretty staunch credentials there yourself, sir. There we go. I appreciate that. Well, for everyone listening, thank you. Um, if you found this helpful or enjoyable, um, thank you. And I, there's a few things I'm hoping you could do as a result for us. Um, first is... Actually, give us your feedback, uh, you know, via LinkedIn, via email. Send us a note just to let us know how things are going. Uh, maybe share your remote work experiences just the same. Um, I'm also hoping you can do us a favor and do a few things. One is subscribe on your favorite platform. Uh, that helps you make sure you don't miss an episode. It also, um, you know, 
helps those uh, podcast engines surface it to other people who might be interested. Um, give us a rating on that podcast platform. Five stars, of course, being preferred, and maybe even write a review. <clears throat> and then third, um, in terms of like a, of a favor, I'd love if everybody could f- tell a contact about this episode. So I'm actually going to build a little bit of an incentive structure. Brian and I are both comp people uh, at our core. Um, so for anybody listening, if, if you go to, to LinkedIn and find the Novo Insights post that shares this episode, for every new episode, there'll be a, a Novo Insights post that shares the episode. If you then share that post to your LinkedIn network, you don't have to comment, you just got to hit repost, basically. Um, if you do that, we'll be able to see that you did that. And we'll reach out to you and we will work with you to pick out um, a fun HR-themed t-shirt of your choice. Um, those who have been on video calls with me have seen some of the the interesting t-shirt designs. My personal favorite being the one that says, at least I'm not a lawyer, that I wear every time I talk to my lawyers. Um, but there's other kind of HR-themed, humorous t-shirts, uh, and one will be shipped your way. Uh, all you got to do is post that podcast episode to your network so that other people can find us. So pretty simple. Um Terms and conditions that I I will speed up when I do this later, maybe, because it's not what people do with terms and conditions. They have to make it go faster. Um, just make sure you do it within a month of posting. This isn't like five years from now, somebody's going to say, where's my t-shirt? Um, so from the posting date of the podcast, just make sure within a month, you share it to your network and a t-shirt will come your way. So I hope our listeners cost me a lot of money in t-shirts um, as we get the word out about the podcast. Some of the inspiration for those t-shirts was put together by some pretty smart people is what I heard. So, Yes, uh, the story behind that for everyone, early pandemic, uh, as a creative outlet, Brian and I traded ideas about like, wouldn't that be a funny t-shirt? Um, yes, including a, a particularly nerdy Venn diagram comparing the life of an HR person to Katy Perry in Last Friday Night. Although I can't send that as a T-shirt because the robots have realized that that's copyrighted oh, material, so that that gets to stay between us apparently. Yeah. Well, thank you, sir. But uh, yeah, at least you're not a lawyer. <laughs> that's right. at least I'm not a lawyer. Well, thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Novo Insights, where we help people teams use data to make a bigger impact in their organization. Reach out if you want to learn more at NovoInsights.com or Novo Insights on LinkedIn. Until next time, thanks for listening. Let's be honest, you don't know why your candidates accept or decline your offers. Recruiter feedback is unstructured and probably a bit biased. So why not listen to your candidates in a way that generates real insight into their experience and decision-making? Novo Attract gathers better feedback from your candidates through the candidate cycle. It helps you better understand the candidate experience and most importantly, helps you know why talent accepts or declines your offers. The Novo Attract dashboard makes it easy to understand what matters, and our analysts make sure the data is used and put into action. Check us out at www.novoinsights.com slash novoattract.